This program is brought to you by Bobbleway Media, under the oversight of the elders of the Chipman Road Congregation in Lee Summit, Missouri. You're listening to Opening the Scriptures with Don Boyd. Welcome to the program. This is Don Boyd. I want to welcome you to Opening the Scriptures. We're going to continue our studies today in the book of Romans, and we're going to be in Romans chapter 7. Now, in order to understand Romans chapter 7, we need to be reminded of some of the things that we've already discussed previously. First thing is that all the world is guilty before God. Back in Romans chapter 3, verse 19. Romans 3.19 says, Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. A second thing we need to remember is that no flesh is justified by law. Romans chapter 3 verse 20 where it says, Therefore by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. And then the third thing we want to remember is that God's righteousness is now made known and witnessed by the law and prophets. That's Romans 3.21. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Fourthly, we need to remember that in baptism we become dead to sin. Romans 6 verses 2 and 3. Romans 6, 2 and 3. It says, God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? And that in baptism, this is the fifth thing, our body of sin is destroyed. And that's Romans 6, 6 where it says, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. And then the sixth thing that we need to remember is, when we are dead to sin, we are alive unto God. Again, Romans chapter 6, verse 11 this time. It says, Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. When we get into Romans chapter 7, the first thing that we're going to find in verses 1 through 6 is that marriage is used as an illustration to discuss the relationship between the law of Moses and the gospel of Christ. There in Romans chapter 7 verse 1, we find that we are not under law when we are dead. Romans 7 1 says, Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. Now you'll notice there where it's there in the parenthetical statement where it says, for I speak to them that know the law. The word thee is not in the original language. 
Young's literal translation translates Romans chapter 7 verse 1 this way. Are ye ignorant, brethren? For to those knowing law I speak, that the law hath lordship over the man as long as he liveth. So no warrants or arrests are made for people that are lying in a cemetery. Law is imposed on the living, not on the dead. So Paul is discussing the law of Moses and showing when its rule came to an end. In Romans 7, 2, we see that it is God's law that both parties in a marriage be faithful unto death. Romans chapter 7, verse 2. For the woman which hath a husband is bound by the law to her husband, so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. And again, where it says, where the, for the woman which hath an husband is bound by, and the word thee is not there again in the original, is bound by law to her husband. Again, we want to look at Young's literal translation here of Romans 7, 2. It says, for the married woman to the living husband hath been bound by law. And if the husband may die, she hath been free from the law of her husband. In Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 9, we find here a discussion between the Pharisees and Jesus concerning marriage and divorce and remarriage. Verse 3, Matthew 19, 3, says, The Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him, and saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? And he answered and said unto them, Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh? Wherefore, they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. They say unto him, Why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement and to put her away? He saith unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you to put away your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say unto you, Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her which is put away, doth commit adultery. So when the husband dies, the wife is released from the law of her husband. <clears throat> In other words, she is no longer bound to her husband. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39. 1 Corinthians 7, 39. The verse says, The wife is bound by the law as long as her husband liveth. But if her husband be dead, she is at liberty to be married to whom she will only in the Lord. So there are those that try to use this verse 
to teach that the guilty party in a divorce, in other words, the party guilty of fornication, is released from his or her spouse when that spouse dies and is free to remarry. That is not the case because the guilty party is still a having been put away for fornication person and does not have the right scriptural right to remarry. Now in Matthew 19, 9 again, Jesus said, I say unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery, and whoso marrieth her which is put away doth commit adultery. That woman or man who has been put away for fornication is still a put away for fornication person. And anyone that marries that individual commits adultery as well as the individual him or herself. So the illustration is for a marriage that has been constant and true there in Romans chapter 7 verse 2. Romans 7, 3, a woman can only be married to one husband at a time. And the same is true of the husband. He can only be married to one wife at a time. Again, Romans 7, 3. So then, if while her husband liveth she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. So only one at a time. When the husband dies, the woman is free from her responsibilities to that husband. The illustration is pointing to the fact that the Jews died to their responsibilities to the law of Moses when that law passed away, when that law died. In Romans 7, 4, we see the conclusion that is drawn from the illustration. Romans 7, 4. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. So the Jews became dead to the law of Moses when it died, when it ended. And the law ended when Jesus died. In Ephesians 2, look at verse, verses 14 through 16. Ephesians 2, 14 through 16. <clears throat> it says there, For he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. The middle wall of partition being the law of Moses that stood between the Jews and the Gentiles. And the he there is the Christ. Verse 15. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, 
and that he might reconcile both. The word both there refers to both Jew and Gentile unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. He slew the law of Moses, in other words, the enmity that stood between the Jew and the Gentile. And into one body, in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20, let's see, Ephesians chapter 1, we flip over there to it, and you look at the last two verses of that chapter, 22 and 23. It says, And hath put all things under his feet, gave him, that being Jesus, to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. So the church is the one body here in Ephesians 2.16 that he reconciles both Jew and Gentile unto God. In Colossians chapter 2, look at verses 12 through 14. Colossians 2, 12 through 14. It says, Buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him. The word quickened there means made alive. Having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. So Jesus took the law of Moses out of the way, and he nailed it to the cross. It is no longer in force. In 2 Corinthians 11.2, we see that everyone can now be married to Christ through the gospel. 2 Corinthians 11.2. Paul wrote, For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. So the church, speaking specifically here, the church in Corinth, was to be presented as a chaste virgin to Christ. So the Jesus' church worldwide, the church of Christ, is to be presented as a chaste virgin to Christ. In Ephesians 5, and we look at verses 22 to 32, we see this same illustration here against husbands and wives being shown to be an illustration of Christ and the church. Ephesians 5.22 Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. <clears throat> For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body, body being the church. Verse 24 Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. When we look at the love that Christ has for the church, he never did anything to hurt the church. He did everything for the church, and that is the way husbands are to be for their wives. Verse 26, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. Washing of water, of course, referring to baptism. 
verse 27, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. And in verse 32, he says, This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. So there's that relationship again of Christ and the church being illustrated by the relationship of a husband and wife. In Hebrews chapter 9, we're going to look at verses 16 and 17. And we find there that neither the Jews nor the Gentiles could be under the new covenant until Christ died. Hebrews 9, 16 and 17. It says, For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is of force after men are dead. Otherwise it is no strength at all while the testator liveth. So as an illustration again, you know, we make out a will. Well, our will is not in force until we die. That is what we're looking at here in Hebrews 9, 16 and 17. That will is of no force at all while we are still alive. It takes its force when we are dead. So the death of Christ is the distinguishing point in history when it comes to law. Both the law of Moses and the patriarchal law were taken out of the way and the new law, the law of Christ, the law of liberty, was ushered in. So now in Romans 7, 5, and 6, we we're going to find the contrast between being dead in sin and being alive in the gospel. In Romans 7, 5, we see that sin bring forth fruit unto death. Romans 7, 5. For when we were in the flesh, the motions of our sins, which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death kind of explaining that in Romans 1 9 when we were in the flesh is referring to before we obeyed the gospel when we were still sinners you know our our bodies have always been flesh but we were following the works of the flesh as is found in Galatians 5 19 and following Romans 1 9 says for God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. We serve God in our spirit in the gospel of his son, and our spirit controls our fleshly bodies. 
And in James 1, 13 through 15, we find that the motions of sin, which were by the law, does not mean that law produces sin. Law does not produce sin. In James 1, 13 to 15, it says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when sin hath conceived, it bringeth forth death, and sin, when it is finished, excuse me, when lust, verse 15 again, when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. So we're drawn away of our own lust and enticed. The law doesn't do that. Law was given to call attention to sin. We go back to Romans chapter 3 now, verse 20. Romans 3.20 says, Therefore by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. You see, the natural desires of the body are not sinful. When we use our bodies to fulfill those desires contrary to God's law is when sin occurs. You know, it is sin that brings forth fruit unto death, as we just read in James 1.15. We'll reread that verse. It says, Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. In Romans 7.6, we find that we are discharged from the old law. Romans 7, 6. But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. All right, so it says, but now we are delivered from the law. The word delivered there, the Greek word according to Thayer means this. To render idle, unemployed, inactivate, inoperative, to cause to cease, put an end to, do away with, annul, abolish. So we are delivered from the law. We are ceased from being under the law. It has been put away with. It has been done away with. It has been abolished. So as a Christian, we do not serve God through the old law, whether that is the law of Moses or the patriarchal law. And we serve God in the newness of the spirit, that being the gospel. If we were to serve God or try to serve God through the old law or patriarchal law, that would be spiritual adultery. When we look in Matthew chapter 9, verses 16 and 17, Jesus uses an illustration to refer to this. Matthew 9, 16 and 17. He says, No man putteth a new piece of cloth unto an old garment. For that which is put in to fill it up taketh from the garment, and the rent is made worse. 
Neither do men put new wine into old bottles, else the bottles break, and the wine runneth out, and the bottles perish. But they put new wine into new bottles, and both are preserved. You know, Jesus is using this illustration to show that if you are under the new law, whenever that was to come into effect at his death, that old law was not worth anything anymore. And he uses this example here. You know, if you get a new piece of cloth and you try to put that in an old garment, when you wash it, that new piece of cloth is going to shrink, you know, going to shrink and it's going to rend or tear that garment. It doesn't fit. The same thing with the new wine into the old bottles. You know, the old bottles are going to have that uh, fermentation in it or whatever, and you're going to put this new fresh grape juice in there, and it's going to ferment and explode that bottle. You put fresh grape juice into new wine bottles or wine skins, and that way they're both preserved. In Acts chapter 15, verse 24, here we have the apostles sending a a letter there to the Gentiles. And this is part of that letter. <clears throat> so as far as much as we have heard that certain which went out from us have troubled you with words, subverting your souls, saying, ye must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment. See, circumcision and keeping the law, that would be putting this new covenant that they're under into this old covenant that they're not under and it doesn't work it is not to be done because circumcision being under the law of Moses keeping the law of Moses he said we did not give such a commandment that is not in effect anymore and then in Acts 21 we want to look at verses 20 and 21 Acts 21 20 and 21 it says, And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord and said unto him, Thou seest, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are which believe, and they are all zealous of the law. You see, there's a problem there. There was a problem there in the church in Jerusalem if they were zealous of the law of Moses. You can't put the law of Christ and the law of Moses together. Verse 21 says, And they are informed of thee, that speaking about, of Paul, that thou teachest all the Jews which are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after the customs. Well, that's true. That's what Paul was teaching. Because they were delivered from that old law so they can serve God under the gospel system. There was a problem there with the teaching that was going on in the church in Jerusalem. In Romans 7, verses 7 through 11, we're going to see the deficiency, deficiency of the law. In verse 7, it says, Some make then question if the law is sin. And the answer is no. Romans 7, 7 says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. Now, 
we need to understand here the Greek word for God where it says God forbid. The Greek word for God theos is not found there in the original language. We again want to look at the literal translation of Romans 7, 7. It says, what shall we say then is the law sin? Let it not be. For I did not know sin except through law. For also I did not know lust except the law said, ye shall not lust. In Galatians 3.19, we see the fact that people violated the law and sinned. That did not make the law sinful. Galatians 3.19. Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. So we see the law was to serve till the seed should come. That seed being Christ. And the law of Moses was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. The mediator was Moses. So the law brings forth the nature, it tells us what sin is, and it gives the consequences for sin. Law then tells us what is right and wrong, but it cannot be saved. It cannot save anyone, which is what the Jews believed. The Jews believed the law could save them and it cannot. In Genesis 4, 6, and 7, God describes their sin as a creature that is determined to destroy us. He's speaking to Cain in Genesis chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. says, The Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth, and why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, thou shalt thou not be accepted. And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door, and unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. The word lieth there comes from the Hebrew word that Strong says means this, to crouch on all four legs folded like a recumbent animal. By implication, recline, repose, brood, lurk, or embed. Sin is like an animal on all fours crouched ready to attack. And God tells Cain, you must overcome it. You must rule over sin. And then in Romans 7, 8, we find, you remember, but sin taking occasion by the commandment wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. For without the law, sin was dead. If there was no law, there was no sin. In other words, Paul is again here speaking of the time before he reached the age of accountability. But when he became accountable to the law, to law, that's whenever sin overcame him. Well, but sin here again, Romans 7, 8, taking occasion. The word taking means to take. 
and again, this is Bolton's definitions. Occasion, this is Thayer's definition. A place from which a movement or attack is made, a base of operation. So it, sin has its base of operation, this occasion, this place from which an attack is made. And then he says, oops, I went the wrong direction. For without the law, sin was dead. But he also said, taking occasion by the commandment. By the commandment. In other words, the law does not cause sin. It gives an occasion to sin. You know, going back to Genesis chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. The woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. So that just shows law tells what sin is, and it gives the occasion to sin. But that commandment that God gave to Adam and Eve was not sin. In Romans 7, 8, But sin taking occasion by the commandment wrought in me all manner of concupiscence, for without the law sin was dead. You know, if God had never said that thou shalt not eat of the, tree, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, when they ate of it, it would not have been sin. But God did give that law. And when they ate of it, it was sin. Well, now, but sin taking occasion, again, Romans 7, 8, by the commandment, wrought in me. The word wrought there means to work out, for example, to do that from which something results of things or bring about a result in. So in other words, he's saying sin brought about the result in me all manner of concupiscence. Thayer says the Greek word translated concupiscence means this, desire, craving, longing, desire for what is forbidden, lust. And we see that by the time the devil got through speaking to Eve, she had a desire for what was forbidden, and then she partook of that fruit. Well, the desires were there before the command and they became evil desires when they violated God's law. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, 1 John 3, 4 says, Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. Where there is no law, there is no sin. But God has always had law for mankind. But law does not apply to a person not yet responsible. In other words, the law to God there does not apply to a person not yet responsible. They're not old enough yet. Or to those who never will be because of their being mentally incompetent. In Romans 7, 9, we are alive without law before we reach the age of accountability. Paul wrote in Romans 7, 9, For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. Again, there is no the 
before law. It would read, for I was alive without law once. And I find it interesting that the translators also left out the before sin. Romans 7, 9 in Young's literal translation reads it correctly. And I was alive apart from law once. And the command having come, the sin revived and I died. In Ecclesiastes 7.29, we see that the command comes when we are old enough to realize our responsibility to God's laws. Ecclesiastes 7.29, Solomon said, Lo, this only have I found, that God hath made man upright, but they have sought out many inventions. In Ezekiel 28.15, so speaking there of the king of Tyre. Ezekiel 28, 15, he says, Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day that thou wast created until the, you know, the day that it was born, till iniquity was found in thee when he reached the age of accountability. In Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, whenever we reach that age, sin becomes real in our lives and it separates us from God. Isaiah 59, one and two. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither is ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. And then Paul said, sin revived. Robertson's word picture says that that phrase, that Greek word there means sin came back to life, waked up, the blissful, innocent stage was over, the commandment having come. And then he says, and I died. <coughs> Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. I died. But then it says also the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The law was given by God to help people. But that same law, when it was violated, condemns those who violate the law. That is Romans 7.10. Romans 7.10 says, And the commandment, which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. You see, he had not reached that age yet. But when he did, when he violated that law, it condemned. The law provided no means of forgiveness without the Messiah. In Romans chapter 8, verse 1, Romans 8, 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. So there was condemnation before the Messiah came. But now, if you are in Christ, and again you get into Christ through baptism, Romans 6, 3 and 4, Galatians 3, 27, there is no condemnation. 
because, you know, only Christ, he's the only one that ever kept the law perfectly. We find in Hebrews 4.15 the following statement, Hebrews 4.15. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. You know, we are tempted through the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Jesus was tempted in the very same ways and yet he did not sin. In Romans chapter 7 verse 11, we find that sin deceives us and slays us. Romans 7:11. For sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me, and by it slew me. In Hebrews 3:12 and 13, we have an example Hebrews 3, 12, and 13 says, But take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. You know, there's some things there I want to bring up, especially there in verse 13. Exhort one another daily. Whenever this COVID thing went through, how many of us were exhorting one another daily? Are we being absent from the opportunities to do that? Think about Hebrews 10:25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. That whenever we failed to gather together on the Lord's day, we failed to obey Hebrews 10.25. There are those that try to say, oh, but that doesn't refer to that, our assembling together. I don't know what the word assembly there means then. And they don't either, if that is the case. We're to exhort one another. And in order to do that, we have to be together. But anyway, going back, you can have that for free. That just chased a rabbit there for a minute. God gave the law to Israel to help them see the exceeding sinfulness of sin. But Satan used the law to lead Israel to believe they could be justified by the law. Therefore, they saw no need for Christ to save them from sin. In Romans 10, 1 through 3, we find an illustration of that. Romans 10, 1 through 3. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. You know, we spoke earlier that there appeared to be a problem there in the church in Jerusalem, and this could be the very thing that we were looking at there that Paul describes here in Romans 10, 1 through 3. You know, really few people see the consequences of the sin that they are about to perform. 
Judaism, under the law of Moses, didn't have an answer for the, the sin problem. There was no answer. The law was deficient in dealing with man in his sin. Only through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and our obedience to the gospel can our sins be forgiven. We must hear the word of God, Romans 10, 17. So then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We must believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God where Jesus said there, John chapter 424, I believe it is, except you believe that I am, he, John 824, not 4, John 824, except you believe that I am, you shall die in your sins. The word he there is just in, in, input by the translators. We must repent of sins. Jesus said in Luke 13, 3 and Luke 13, 5, except you repent it, you shall all perish. We must confess the deity of Christ, Romans 10, 9, and 10, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in thine heart that God that raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved, for with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And then we must be immersed in water for the remission of sins. Acts 22, 16. The verse says, And now why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. That's how we call on the name of the Lord. We don't just say, Lord, Lord. As Jesus said in Matthew seven twenty one. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. And the verses we just looked at would be doing the will of the Father which is in heaven in order to have salvation. And that salvation only comes through Jesus Christ. So again, we're going to stop there. And Lord willing, we'll start there next time in Romans chapter 7, 12. But we'll stop there today. So again, this is Don Boyd. I want to thank you for tuning in to be with us. We look forward to being with you next time. When you're in Moody, Missouri, you're invited to visit the Moody Church of Christ located on Highway E in Moody, Missouri. The congregation there meets on Sunday morning at 10 a.m. for Bible class, 11 a.m. for worship, and then again at 6 p.m. for Sunday evening worship. They also meet at 6 p.m. on Wednesday night for Bible study. We thank you for listening today. We hope you enjoyed this program. You can find out more about Bible Media by visiting our website, BibleWayMedia.org. You can find all of our podcasts on all major podcast platforms. As always, we thank you for listening.